Welcome to episode one of The Policy Shop, the podcast for the Illinois Policy Institute. I'm Joe Kaiser, and today we're talking about the state's new budget deal and why lawmakers shouldn't necessarily be patting themselves on the back for passing it. The state, of course, at a time recently went two years without a budget in place. This year, they passed it quickly, and the governor signed it into law. But the plan spends between $635 million and $1.5 billion more than realistic revenue estimates. Adam Schuster, the Illinois Policy Institute's Director of Budget and Tax Research, explains why this isn't a great deal for taxpayers, and how lawmakers used a range of budgetary gimmicks to pass yet another unbalanced budget. That analysis is right here, starting now. There's two main problems with the plan that was just passed. The first one is the way it was passed. So this this budget was negotiated behind closed doors without any input from interest groups like the Illinois Policy Institute, no input from taxpayers in their district, and actually many rank-and-file lawmakers were kept out of the process, and it was finally negotiated. The, the, the true details were negotiated by, a, by the leaders, meaning um, John Cullerton, uh, Mike Madigan, Representative Durkin, Bill Brady, Rauner and his staff, and then sort of their key lieutenants. So it was like a very small group of, of sort of political elites that were making these decisions and not bringing anyone else into it. And they, when they finally introduced the budget and made it public, they did sort of a, a gimmick where they, they, it's called a gut and replace, where they take all the language out of an existing bill and they file an amendment that has 1,245 pages of new text that lawmakers are expected to vote on and they're expected to vote on it within about four hours without having any time to read it. And so really it robbed them of their of their chance to meaningfully represent the folks back home, the people who put them in office, because there's no way whether they could have known whether it was a good deal or them for not, unless they were one of that, you know, small elite group. Is that much different than how they've done it in the past? Unfortunately not. Um, it's, you know, it, it is a long running practice in Illinois. But that doesn't mean it's right. Right. Uh, you know, we've been doing things this way for a long time, and that's part of the reason we're in the trouble we're in. Um, so that that's that's my my issue with with the process and with transparency. And then there's also a lot of problems with just the substance of the bill. So, first of all, they didn't pass a revenue estimate, and a revenue estimate is simply a projection of how much money you're going to take in over the next year, and the the state law requires there's two agencies, an executive agency and a legislative agency that are required to produce an estimate. But then the, the legislature, the General Assembly, is supposed to look at those two numbers and either average them or pick one that they like or come up with their own number. And they're supposed to pass a joint resolution that says exactly how much money the state expects to bring in. And the reason that's so important, you know, some people are like, well, why, why are people harping on this? It's not just the Illinois Policy Institute who's been talking about this. A lot of conservatives in the legislature have, were demanding a revenue estimate initially, although some of them backed down near the end. Um, but the reason it's important is because the, the revenue estimate creates a ceiling for state spending. If you say that you're going to take in $38 billion, you can't spend more than that. 
there's an attorney general pin. It, it's very clear in the Constitution that, that that's what it means. But in case people need more proof, uh, Attorney General Lisa Madigan back in 2014 issued an opinion where she said just that, that it creates a ceiling beyond which they may not go. Um, and so they didn't want to pass that revenue estimate because not only did they not want a ceiling on their spending, but they also didn't want to give us an opportunity to critique how they came up with the estimate. And that's where we get into sort of the gimmicks. Right. And, and I think a revenue estimate is, is something that's easy for families to understand because when they make a budget, they have to estimate how much they're bringing in to, to plan for the future. So that's an easy concept to understand. And then the fact that Illinois hasn't been doing this for so long, you're talking about the transparency thing, that they've been having bad transparency practices for a number of years. It's also this practice. It's the yep. fact haven't had a balanced budget. I mean, the number that comes around is since 2001, yep. possibly even longer. Um, it's just, like you said before, just because they've been doing it for a while doesn't make it right. Yeah, that's that's right. And, you know, there was, there was some pushback. I'm not going to name names, but there was at least one lawmaker said, well, you know, when, when people plan their budgets at home, they they make assumptions and they make projections about how much money they're going to bring in. The difference between how people budget at home and how the legislature has been budgeting is that people budget based on realistic numbers, right? If you if you have uh, uh, if you're on a salary, you know exactly how much you're going to be bringing in. Um, if you have an hourly rate, you know about how much how many number of hours you work. You know what your your earnings each month tend to be. And there could be, you know, if you're lucky, opportunities for you to get more money, right? Maybe you win the lottery. Maybe you uh, get an inheritance, although that's not a very happy way to get more money. Maybe you get a performance-based bonus from your job. But you don't plan your core spending around those sort of extra items, right? You, you plan your core spending around what you know you're going to have. And if you get something extra, you can, you can put it aside in savings. You can buy something else that you'd like. You can pay off some old debts. And that's how the legislature should be doing their budgets. But instead, they're counting on a bunch of sort of revenue gimmicks to make it look like they have more money than they're going to. Well, let's get into a few of those gimmicks. Yeah. What, what, are, what are they specifically? So one example, this is the third year in a row that they have sold the James R. Thompson Center, which is a state government building. It's weird uh, how that works. They can sell it <laughs> yeah. three times. Yeah, exactly. So, so this three years in a row, they've counted on $300 million in revenue from the sale of that building. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. The building's not on the market yet. They haven't identified a buyer yet. Uh, it hasn't been zoned to sell yet. The legislature hasn't given them the authority to sell it through statute. And it's actually not only Rauner who's been trying to sell it. Rod Blagojevich, back in the in the mid-2000s, tried to sell the building as well, and he couldn't do it either. So <laughs> that that's a, that's an example of revenue that you absolutely should not count on until you know you have a bill of sale, right? Until, until you're handing over the keys to the building, don't count on that money being there. Um, but they do. And the result is when they don't get that $300 million, but they spend the $300 million, that means more debt. And it's more debt for taxpayers. Well, what's what's the holdup in, in selling the, the Thompson Center? Why is it coming up over and over again, but it's not something that actually happened? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot of interesting uh, sort of behind the scenes reasons for that. Some people think that Rahm Emanuel put a brick on it, which means that he was intentionally holding it up uh, in exchange for some things that he wanted from the state. Uh, other issues are, you know, they're, they're saying that the building is going to sell for $300 million. Well, it has $326 million in deferred maintenance costs, meaning, you know, um, 
if you've been in the building, they've got uh, the the carpets taped to the floor, the the paints all old and chipped. Uh, you know, the elevators are unreliable. So the building has a lot of maintenance, and the maintenance costs actually exceed what they're saying the sale price of the building is. Um, there's also an issue with zoning because there's an L stop underneath the building right. yeah. that's going to make it more difficult to do uh, demolition. So th- there's several reasons it hasn't sold yet, but that's actually not even the, the largest uh, gimmick. Sure, I the, say, but yeah. I just I think it's interesting because they almost know when they put this into the budget that this isn't going to be a real thing. Yeah, and I think I think in all honesty, they they know about all of them, at least the leaders, the people who are negotiating this budget, they know that the gimmicks they're relying on aren't realistic. They're not trying to pass a truly balanced budget. The reason they're not trying to do that is because that takes serious decision-making that that might make them vulnerable in an election year. And instead of making those serious, tough decisions, they're playing a shell game. They're, they're essentially using smoke and mirrors to make the budget appear balanced on paper. And we need to care about that because you know the state's problems weren't created in one year. They're not going to be fixed in one year. Uh, we've racked up debt over the decades for decades of overspending, but you know it's sort of like if you went to the bank to ask for a loan, you might have debt, right? You might have a car payment, you might have a mortgage, you might have some student loan debt. They're not interested in that you have no debt as long as you seem like you're on a path to pay it down, right? Are you making regular payments? And this budget doesn't even start to make payments on our existing debt, and in fact, it adds to our debt. Uh, so that's why the credit rating agencies haven't been pleased with it and why they're keeping us at just one notch above junk. We're, we're right on the verge of having our, our bonds be non-investment grade. So the rating ratings agencies, and you can get into the other gimmicks in a second, I kind of sidetracked you there. Yeah. Uh, they they see right through these. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they know. So what, what, what bondholders look at, there's actually some interesting history here. Uh, balanced budget requirements, all, f- all 50 states essentially have them. Vermont doesn't have one on paper, but they have a a strong, let's call it a norm or tradition of balanced budget making. So essentially all 50 states require balanced budgets. And the reason for that actually dates back to the mid 1800s. Sorry for the little history lesson here, but um, bondholders lost a lot of confidence in uh, state bonds because they were continually spending and they were continually blowing their budgets. And and when people are, are buying a bond. They're, they're, they're making a long-term investment. What they want to know isn't just, is this budget balanced this year? It's the long-term trajectory of your spending versus the long-term trajectory of your revenue and whether it's balanced in the long term. Um, so the ratings agencies don't want to see a budget that may appear balanced due to gimmicks. They want to see a budget that actually handles our structural deficit. And the structural deficit is something that's been built up for a number of years, and you can see it when you project out in the future. So the the gimmicks are more so, I guess, a big part of it would probably be for electoral politics. The gimmicks are there to kind of give the impression that here's a balanced budget. Look, we came together in a bipartisan fashion. We got something done. That's right. It's a it's a political shield, you know. Before before they passed this budget, um, I I was talking, you know, I gave some radio interviews and things like that, and I would say they usually use the budget as a campaign weapon in election years rather than as a policy tool. And this year, they're not using it as a campaign weapon; they're using it as a campaign shield. Uh, they were all worried that. Uh, the, because of the recent two-year budget impasse, we went over two years without a, without a full year's budget, that they didn't know, you know, they thought everybody who was an incumbent 
you know, who was already in office was vulnerable if they didn't have a budget. And so I think this was sort of a, a CYA cover your own ass uh, <laughs> type situation. Um, and yeah, so you, you, you hit it on the head. So before we, I, I want to get into to that more so, but before we get into that, besides the Thompson Center, a few of the other budgetary gimmicks that they, they play with. I know a big one that you've talked about before is the speculative pension savings. Yeah. Uh, can you go a little, elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So first, I do want to mention, um, the so they, they created these pension buyout plans. And essentially what it does is it gives people a discount on future be- pension benefits, but they can get it now. And there's two different types of the buyout. Uh, one buys out the cost of living adjustment for people who are, who are about to retire. Uh, and one of them is for people who are vested but inactive. So essentially what that means is you worked for the state long enough to earn a pension, but then maybe you left and took a different job, and now they're offering you a buyout where they give you about 60% of what your lifetime pension would be, but they give it to you all in one lump sum, and you have to put it into like a 401k account or something like that. That is good policy, and we support that policy. Uh, I support that policy. The, the question isn't whether it's a good policy, it's whether you can count on a definite amount of savings from that policy for the budget. So they estimated that this would save about 440, well, $444 million in total pension savings, 422 million of that comes from the pension buyouts. And they're basing that on what happened in Missouri. In Missouri, they did a very similar buyout uh, uh, program and 22% of the pensioners took them up on it. And so they use that same uptake rate, it's called, of 22%. The problem is we have very different dynamics in Illinois than in Missouri. Uh, Missouri didn't have as generous of pensions and they weren't constitutionally guaranteed. So when you offered somebody a buyout in Missouri, it looked a lot more attractive. Now, I may take the buyout if I if I had the option to, just because there's a good chance that our pension system is going to go insolvent sure, because yeah, it is exactly. so much in debt. I'm not saying that the pension buyouts are bad policy or anything like that. The, the point here is that a lot of state workers are going to they're going to know that their that their benefits are constitutionally guaranteed. The Supreme Court has said not only do, does the Constitution protect already earned pensions, it protects your future increases in your benefits. And because of that, it's it's a di- very different calculation than it was in Missouri. So the, the thing is, we just don't know what the number is going to be. And so to count on those savings is, is speculative. They're, they're taking a guess, and they're taking a guess and then using that guess to plan their budget. Well, given that the, I mean, the, the Constitution, like you said, has those protections in it, and this is the most daunting issue facing the state, what can lawmakers do in any given budget when they're addressing the pension situation as an alternative to resorting to these kinds of gimmicks? Sure. So there's some things they could do right now. Long term, we, we seriously need to start having conversations about changing the pension protection clause. Um, and there's different ways you could do it. You could, you know, in a lot of states, earned benefits are protected, right? So whatever benefits you've earned to this date can't be reduced, but the future increases in those benefits are still open to change, right? Your, your cost of living increase, um, if you're not retired yet, what the retirement age is going to be. And in Illinois, the Supreme Court said you can't even touch that future stuff, not, not only the past stuff. So we do need to, we need, we need to start thinking about that very seriously. But even before that, the governor actually proposed a a solution and opponents of it call it a cost shift but really what it's about is about aligning the costs of pensions with the people who incur the bill so the way it works right now 
is local governments in Illinois incur pension benefits. They hire employees, they contract with them, they, they decide you know, what, what their pension benefits are going to be, and then the state picks up the bill. And that creates a really bad incentive because the, these local governments don't ever have to pay the, the, the bill that they're incurring. The state as a whole pays it. Now we know ultimately it doesn't make any difference. Taxpayers pay the bill. Every dollar that the government has comes out of a taxpayer's pocket in one way or the other. But when you're a local official, it's easy for you to push the costs off onto the state. And so it's a misalignment of incentives. So we could have saved, well, it depends on how fast you do it. The governor had, had suggested uh, shifting 25% of those costs back to the local governments and then another 25% the next year. So kind of phasing it in over four years to kind of ease the burden on them. You could save even more money if you did it all at once. Um, then you're talking, you know, billions of dollars of savings. Then the idea would be that the local governments would reform their spending opposed to, you know, resorting to a property tax hike or something. That's right. Yeah. So I think I think it's something that does need to be done in conjunction with property tax relief. We, you know, maybe a property tax freeze or something like that needs to happen um, because we don't want local governments to hike property taxes to pay these bills. What we want them to do is be more efficient, more careful with their own spending, um, you know, reducing needless layers of administration, potentially consolidating where you have overlapping layers of government, you know, things like that so that they can afford to pay the cost. But it, it's also about the incentive um, for them not to hike these benefits beyond what they can afford. Because right now they don't care whether they can afford the pensions because they know someone else is going to pick up the bill for them. Right. And on, on that front, on the property tax front, that was a big it was one of the many factors that went into the budget impasse that lasted almost for over two years um, was Governor Rauner and a lot of legislative Republicans asking for reforms, originally a property tax freeze, they wanted workers' comp reform, um, several other term limits were on the table for a while, and it led to this long impasse that I think voters maybe got hung up on the politics of it, but mm -hmm. ultimately it was, it was to try to get some reforms passed, and then it resulted in the 32% income tax increase in 2017. Now, this budget process in 2018 seemed to go a lot smoother, and I guess you could probably chalk that up to election year politics in part, uh, but what, what do you think, just looking from the outside, what do you think went into the budget-making processes here that ended up being faster, and then the, the vote totals were far more bipartisan this year? So there's, there's several things that went into it. Uh, first, I'll say, when you have more money, it is easier to balance the budget. That doesn't mean the tax increase is a bad idea. You know, there, uh, there's people who seem to think there's some contradiction between admitting that having more money makes it easier to balance a budget uh, and saying that we shouldn't have hiked taxes. They don't understand how you can say those two things at once. And that's because if you're a status quo politician or somebody who benefits from the status quo, your entire mindset is around government coffers. How much money does the government have? And more money for the government always seems like a good thing. But while it is easier for them to balance the budget because they have to make less spending cuts, the other side of that is that this tax increase was very painful for taxpayers. And, and our chief economist, Orfe Devungai, has um, done a lot of research on how tax hikes are bad for the economy and how they you know, decrease future job growth and wage growth and drive people out of the state. Um, so it, it was easier for them to do it. I think that's part of the reason why the, the process went smoother. But the other part is, is election year politics. I don't think anybody wanted to... Uh, go into an election with a budget impasse. You know, the governor, to his credit, held out longer than I think most people have for those reforms. And, you know, 
people can disagree about whether that was the right strategy to try to get those reforms. But I think in his mind, what he realized is that these are the reforms we do need to, to solve that structural imbalance that I was talking about earlier. Uh, we need to start growing our economy so that we can naturally grow revenue without hiking taxes, because there's two ways to grow your revenue. One is to, to take more money from the people who are already here. And the other one is to bring more people here and create more jobs and have more economic activity going on. And so nobody's individual tax burden goes up, but the government still takes in more money. That's a much better way to raise your revenue. And that's why workers' compensation reform and things like that were so important. The other, the other aspects he was pushing for were you know, spending reforms like pension reform, um, reforms to our, the cost of, of government worker benefits and things like that, that would bring our, our long-term costs in line with what we can afford. Um, because you know, over the, over the most recent 10-year period of data we have, state spending grew 25% faster than residents' personal income. And the reason that matters, residents' personal income means how much money they have in their pocket. And how much money they have in their pocket is, is what they can afford to pay to the government, right? So if state spending is growing faster than personal income, that means the state's spending beyond its means in simple terms. Right. And there's even this, this election year angle to the, the tax hike, because when they voted on it in 2017, there was, I mean, obviously a pass, but there was more opposition, especially in the Republican caucus, to the tax hike in general. Only 15 in the House and one senator voted against it. 10 in the House voted to override. But now you have, ostensibly, you have the income tax hike. They're relying on it this year. And you have all these Republicans that are signing along to the budget, even though the fact that the income tax hike that they apparently opposed the year prior is in it. So that, yeah. that's that's interesting that all of a sudden a year later, whether it's election year politics, I can't get in the mind of a lawmaker, but it's like, okay, the income tax hike is something that happened last year. I'm not going to think about it. We're just going to focus on getting a budget passed this year, no matter what's in it. Just need to get it passed, get it through the finish line, as if that's what people want. And maybe right. they do in some angle. Maybe they, they want to see our government work. But just getting a budget passed just for the sake of getting a budget passed and things you're outlining kind of prove that is not a worthwhile goal. Yeah, I mean, just passing a budget by the deadline, you know, the credit rating agencies said it as well. Like, you know, why are you guys patting yourselves on the back? They may have said it a little bit differently, but, you know, you don't deserve applause for doing the most basic part of your job, right? Like people at home, they don't get a bonus for just showing up to work, right? You have to do a good job. And the question isn't, did you do your job on time or did you do your job? Because for two years, they didn't even do their job. But did you do your job well? And the answer to that question is emphatically no, they did not do their job well. Um, so I, I don't think they, they, they deserve praise for that. Uh, now, as, as to the, the tax hike, uh, I think that's, that goes back to sort of what, what some people are perceiving as a contradiction. And I think there's a number of legislators who wanted to see a revenue estimate that did not include the tax hike. Uh, Representative uh, Dave McSweeney was championing that effort. I know Representative Alan Skillcorn, Jeannie Ives, um, John Cabello, and a few others signed on to that resolution with him. Um, and there are members who voted against the tax hike but for this budget. Some people may say that that they're contradicting themselves. I, I don't really see it that way. What I think there is, there, you have to, you know, you want to stand on principle and you want to do what's right, but you do have to recognize political realities sometimes. And that tax hike wasn't going away this year, not with sure. Democratic supermajorities in, in the Senate and, and strong Democratic control in the House. So. I think a smaller ask than getting rid of the tax hike the year after they did it was, okay, well, the tax hike's here now. Let's make sure we use that money well, right? Let's not use it for new spending. Let's use it to pay down debt 
save money in a rainy day fund and give tax relief to taxpayers. Um, and you know the rainy day fund we haven't we haven't really talked about that yet, but Illinois essentially has no savings right now, and and it's a very important part of state budgeting that you put a little bit of reserve aside. The same way in, in personal finance, people may have heard the rule. There's a few rules of thumb out there, like you should have three months income saved. Right. That's a not everybody can do that, but it's a good goal, right? And and that's because if there's some unexpected event like a medical expense, a car accident, whatever it may be, you have some some money put aside. Uh, for states, they're supposed to do that in case there's a recession, and they're supposed to save about 5% of their revenues uh, in case the economy tanks, and that way they don't have to hike taxes during a downturn, and they don't have to drastically cut spending during a da- downturn. Um, so Illinois, if, if we saved 5% of our revenues, that'd be a little less than $2 billion. We only have $98,000 saved. So that, that, you know, that's, that's, it's less than... Some households. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I can't even uh, calculate the number of decimals away from, from 5% that is in my head. Uh, you know, if, if I had a calculator handy, I could. But it's, it's basically zero. We essentially have $0 in savings. And that's because um, another gimmick that I haven't really talked about yet is every year for the budget, lawmakers dip into other state funds. Uh, to take money out of other parts of the state funds and put it into the general revenue fund. And one of those funds they've been dipping into is our rainy day fund. And they haven't been doing it for natural disasters or or recessions. They've been doing it just because they can't control their spending and they're using it as a crutch. And there's there's nothing stopping them from, from dipping into the rainy day fund. That's right. So many states have withdrawal rules that are more strict on the rainy day fund. You know, maybe you have to have a supermajority. Maybe the governor has to declare a recession or a natural emergency before you can withdraw from your rainy day fund. In Illinois, they can take money out of it through a simple appropriations bill, which is just it's treated just like any other spending. Were there any reforms? <clears throat> you, you said this is a, another gimmick. Were there any reforms that were bandied about in the House or in, in the General Assembly to, to address the Rainy Day Fund? So I didn't see anything this year specifically about the Rainy Day Fund. I, I may have missed something, but there is a reform that kind of gets to the issue, and that's a constitutional spending cap. So we introduced a spending cap amendment in the House and the Senate. Uh, in the Senate, we got some great bipartisan support. It was actually um, primarily sponsored by Senator Tom Cullerton, who's a Democrat, not to be confused with John Cullerton, who's the leader. Um, but what that amendment would do is it would cap increases in state spending to a 10-year average of growth, the, the growth in the economy. And so what that does is it makes sure lawmakers can't spend more than what taxpayers can afford. And if we had done that this year, in principle, because we wanted it as a constitutional amendment, but we also asked them to adopt it as a budgeting principle, they would have only spent $36.9 billion. And that number uh, is hundreds of millions of dollars less than the state's expected to bring in in revenue. And so that would have given us a nice chunk of change that we could have used to pay off some debt or used for tax relief. And it sounds like a common sense thing that you'd think people would support. What is the opposition you get, especially when not even making it law, just using it as a budgetary principle? Why do people say no? Yeah, you know, I I haven't really heard a good argument against it. Um, the, the the closest thing is I was on Chicago tonight with uh, some folks from from other watchdog groups or, or budget you know groups that are let's say left leaning, and uh, one of those gentlemen is uh, Ralph Martiri, and I talked about how state spending was growing faster than personal income, and he said, well, that's irrelevant. 
Uh, and that's a very, very strange argument to make. Uh, and the only way you could make that argument is if you don't realize that taxpayers fund government. Right. right? It's sort of a basic thing that, you know, you can't, your, your spending can't grow faster than personal income or you're going to have to hike taxes. Because taxpayers can't keep up with it. Exactly. Taxpayers can't keep up. There's no way to maintain your same level of, you know, spending, you know, if, if, if taxpayers are, are bringing in less than that. You right. know, cumulatively, so, right. and that that kind of leads to a lot of the other problems the state has. I mean, that this is why if 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 you're going to have to hike taxes, state and local government, because taxpayers can't keep up, this is why people are leaving the state. This is why um, you have pension crisis. This just exacerbates everything else that's going on in the state. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, some of the pushback we get, we we you know, we like to say that taxes are what driving people out of the state. And I think there's a lot of evidence for that. There was a poll in 2016 from the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute that found about half of people who currently live in Illinois want to leave, and taxes were the number one reason they cited. You can also just look at the data, and we have one of the highest state and local tax tax burdens in the nation. Um, so I think that's clear. And they, they like to say, well, it's not taxes, it's uncertainty. But it's uncertainty about taxes, right? Because the, the problem in Illinois isn't just that we have high taxes. That is a problem. But it's also that people are constantly worried that they're going to keep going up, right? You can't trust your lawmakers. They passed a tax hike in 2011. They said it was going to be temporary. They were going to use it to pay down debt. They were going to use it to, to make payments on, on backlog of bills and pensions. They didn't do that. They, they used the entire tax hike for new spending. And when the tax hike expired, they said, oh, we don't, we don't have enough money. We need to hike taxes again. So the problem is they keep coming back to taxpayers rather than going after the root of the problem, which is their own spending. And so that, that creates the uncertainty. You know, People can't plan for their future, whether it's buying a home because they don't know what the property taxes are going to be, or whether it's uh, you know, creating a small business or bringing a bit, an existing business here. You can't make plans in Illinois if you're worried that politicians are going to keep coming to you and taking more money out of your pocket. So if we want to end the out-migration, if we want to give people you know, the security that they can build lives in Illinois, then we need to put lawmakers in handcuffs with the spending cap so that people have the, the certainty that they're not going to overspend anymore. And to go back to something you said before, as a point we make as an organization a lot, these problems didn't start overnight. And these are bad budgets every year for the last 17 years. You can probably go back farther. So that uncertainty is something that you can't really always quantify. But that's something that is, I mean, that's th- threatening to families, to, to homeowners and taxpayers across the state is bad budgets can cause a lot of problems that just lead to uncertainty in, in the future of Illinois. And I think you, you can't really point to that in the, in the budget when you're going through the numbers. But that's something that families feel. That's, that's exactly. what they felt over the last two decades. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can have a theoretical conversation if people want to argue with the Illinois Policy Institute and say the problem isn't taxes. They can make their arguments on TV or in the newspapers. But the fact is people at home don't need to be told what the problem is. They know what the problem is. They feel what the problem is. Um, and so I think, you know, it's it's almost – if we could just stop pretending – that that's not the problem, that, that the overspending isn't the problem, that the busted budgets aren't the problem, then we can we can disagree about solutions. And maybe they have a different solution set than we do. But you know, ta- the, your average taxpayer knows what the problem is. And, and to tell them that it's anything else is just being dishonest. So then I, I think here's another issue is 
you hear, and this goes back to election year politics in part, is you hear Governor Rauner saying this is a balanced budget, people patting themselves on the back for saying this is a bipartisan effort. The media picks that up and says bipartisan effort to pass a balanced budget. And there's kind of a uh, almost um, a positivity created around that. Yeah. But as you've been saying, there's a lot of gimmicks in the budget. It's not good for taxpayers. So if you had to summarize, because those narratives are coming from Democrats, Republicans, and in the media, if you had to summarize to taxpayers why those narratives aren't true, why this budget isn't a good deal for taxpayers, how would you, you know, pitch it to them in a, in a summarized way? Yeah, so what I would simply say, the the easiest, you know, I have a, an article on IllinoisPolicy.org, it's called Budget Gimmicks Explained, that goes through which, which every one of the budget gimmicks. But the simplest way to, to look at it is when the legislative agency, it's called the Commission on Government Forecasting and Accountability, it's a long name, we summarize it, we call it COGFA. They said the state's going to bring in $37.8 billion. And that was including the Thompson Center, and it was including a bunch of borrowing from other state funds. Okay, so based on that estimate alone, 37.8, the budget spends 38.5. Okay, So that's about $700 million, $600, $700 million more than a realistic revenue estimate. Now, if you take out the, the borrowing and you take out the Thompson Center, the budget's out of balance by as much as $1.5 billion. Okay, so... I don't want to be too hard on the Republicans who voted for this or on Governor Rauner or, or people who I think had good intentions. Um, our CEO, John Tillman, wrote a great piece um, that essentially makes the argument that the stack is against the, the deck is stacked against people who want to make reforms, right? Speaker Mike Madigan has a lot of control over the process. Uh, status quo politicians control both houses right now. So I don't know if politically they could have gotten something better. And there's a lot of people making the argument that a bad budget's better than no budget, right? But I think that's a false choice and that ignores what taxpayers deserve. You know, it's not no budget, bad budget. How about a good budget that at least starts to solve our problems? We're not going to fix everything overnight. That's impossible. Um, but we should have at least, you know, put us on the right path, I guess. Yeah, the, the political realities make it impossible for a perfect budget to get passed. But is there anything that you would taxpayers should be optimistic about, whether it's on the pension front or on tax relief, that maybe has been discussed that could, you know, gain enough traction to get passed by even with even with Democrat majorities? Or is there anything that you think could be on the horizon that uh, will be a feasible policy that lawmakers could could rally around? Yeah, I think so. First of all, I think there's some good parts to this budget. Uh, you know, when you look at the top line numbers and you look at, you know, does this deal with our biggest problems? The answer is no. But there's a couple nuggets in there that I like. Uh, one of those is they reduced the cap on, well, they, they put tighter restrictions on pension spiking. So what pension spiking is, is teachers get huge raises right before the end of their career and the district pays that salary for, you know, one to four years, but it inflates their future pension by a whole bunch. And because the state picks up the bill, um, you know the the local officials not worried about it, but it costs a lot of money to the state budget. So because of those stricter, uh, you know, checks against pension spiking, we're we're going to save about twenty two million dollars on that. We also there's a new adoption tax credit, which is I think is a good thing because we want to encourage adoption. And there is a 
it's a lot of money. They're spending about $500 million for a, a public-private partnership to build an innovation center with the University of Illinois. But I think not all spending is, is bad, right? Some, some spending, when there's a return on investment for the state's economy, for taxpayers, when they get something out of it, you know, there are, there are good things that the government does. And I think that's one of the few examples of good spending in this budget. So that, that's, you know, what already happened. There's the silver lining, right? As far as what we can expect in the future, <clears throat> I think we're going to push really hard on the spending cap. And I think that it actually is a realistic idea. It's something that that could get political legs. We saw several Democrats in the Senate jump on board, and you know this is a common sense idea. It's not an ideological idea. It's not. It shouldn't be a partisan issue. Uh, about 25 states have some type of spending cap already. Some of those are better than others, uh, and more more strict than others, and, and therefore work better than others. But that that ranges from liberal states like California. Uh, to conservative states like Texas, to swing states like Ohio and Florida. Um, so I think, you know, when we look, if we want, if we care about what policies work well, we should look to our neighbors to see what's working for them. And a spending cap is working for other states. So I think if we get enough support from the people for this idea, you know, we get a ground cell of support and they pressure their lawmaker, then we could see that enacted. Yeah, and I think well, something we've said a couple times already is tax relief would be the biggest thing for people and the biggest draw to keep them here opposed to moving to other states and and I think people will realize that with things like a spending cap and spending reforms you're going to in turn over time hopefully see some sort of tax relief down the road. Absolutely. I think I think that's the the big point there is the spending cap um, you know you can choose which order you do them but there's if we start bringing in more money than we spend and we have a surplus because of the spending cap you could use that for one of three things. You could put the money aside in a rainy day fund you could pay off the backlog of bills, which is about $7 billion right now. Uh, that's bills the state's incurred but not paid. Or you could start giving tax relief. And you don't have to spend all of the surplus on one thing. You could break it up among those and you know start doing a little bit by little. <clears throat> I, I do think you know tax relief should be very high on the list in the very near term because if we get some good tax relief and, and people have more money in their pocket, that'll help the economy. You know, in every state, there are politicians, probably a majority of politicians, who care more about their own election than they do about you know the long-term fiscal health of their state. And yet Illinois is worse than every one of those states. And so it can't just be that we have different people. Uh, there's got to be more to it. And so my argument is that the process itself you know, gives us a bad result. Some of the things we do wrong are, are first of all, we, we rely on revenue estimates when we bother to pass them. We haven't passed one since 2014. Uh, and those revenue estimates are often very unreliable. So I mentioned the two agencies that are required to do them. The legislative agency has been on target only in four out of the last 10 years, meaning revenue came in over or under their projection. And the executive agency has been on target in only two of the last four years. Uh, and so a spending cap actually solves that problem too because we, we should still re estimate our revenue so we can make a you know an estimate about how much we can pay towards our debt or things like that but what a spending cap does is for for the core spending for for government operations it gives us a reliable number to plan around because we don't have to project anything we just add you know a 10-year average of growth to last year's spending we know exactly how much we have to spend um, other things we do is we have basically phony accounting or, or fake accounting. Uh, we use a system called cash-based accounting, and that 
what it does is you only count spending when you pay your bill. So if you incur a bill but don't pay it, doesn't count as spending. And that allows lawmakers to hide deficits from the people. Uh, and for some lawmakers who don't understand how the accounting works or, or just don't, you know, they don't, they're not given the proper information in the reports, it, it hurts their ability to plan a responsible budget. Uh, and so, you know, at home, this would be like if you didn't, if you balanced your budget by not paying your electric bill. It doesn't mean the electric company isn't going to keep asking for their money or that you don't eventually have to pay it. But you could say, oh, yeah, my budget's balanced this year. I took in more than I spent because I didn't pay my electric bill or I didn't pay my rent. So it's, it's phony accounting. Um, the other one, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit, is, is the rainy day fund. Uh, <clears throat> Illinois is ranked 45th out of 50 states in terms of our reserves, uh, how much money we, we save for recessions. And a big, a big reason for that is because we don't have any rules on when you can dip into your savings, right? Uh, you know, people at home, whether whether it's a formal rule like a 401k, you actually, you know, have to either take a penalty or have a justifiable excuse for taking money out of it. But even just your regular savings account, you might have <clears throat> sort of informal rules on yourself. Like, I'm not going to go into that unless I really need to. You know, you, right. you shouldn't go into your savings for vacation right. or, or something like that. Um, and then the last one, the last thing we do bad is fun, it's called fund sweeps or short-term borrowing. Um, so there's the state has many different accounts, and the, the the part of the budget we usually talk about is called the general funds budget, and that's funded through tax dollars and core government spending, mostly through tax dollars. And we have a bunch of other funds, some of which have dedicated revenue. Okay, and what that means is they're funded by fees or they're funded by uh, penalties. So one example of that, we have a fund called the Mental Health Fund, and it's funded through people who, who receive mental health services, and it's supposed to be used to improve mental health uh, services in Illinois. So it's self-funding, doesn't receive tax dollars, and the General Assembly took 1.1 over 1.1 million dollars out of that fund in 2018 to use for their general funds budget. So first of all, that, that should not count as revenue. They count that as revenue because it's really just taking money out of your right pocket to put it in your left. Uh, you know, it's not new money for the state. And essentially what it's doing is creating deficits in these other accounts to fill holes in, in the general funds budget. Um, so we have several uh, proposed solutions to that. Spending cap is a, is a big part of the solution, but there's other things we can do. Um, for example, we should require the budget to be balanced at the end of the year. Uh, right now, Illinois' constitution only requires that the budget be balanced during the planning stage. So it has to look balanced on paper, and then after that, they don't really care. So if in actuality it's not really balanced, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if they spend more or they take in less and it, and it ends up not being balanced or if something changes mid-year, you know, and it ends up not being balanced, it doesn't matter. They just roll the deficit over into the next year and they do that, you know, through debt. And I, I might be getting this number wrong, but I think it's 37 states that require end of year balance. And what that means is that no matter what, rain or shine, when your budget year ends, when your fiscal year ends, you have to be either at zero or more than zero. You can't have a deficit. You're not allowed to bring a deficit over in the next year. And if that means cutting spending mid-year, then that's what you have to do. Uh, so a truly balanced budget requirement, a meaningfully balanced budget requirement requires end of year balance. 
this is important to go through because I don't know if it's ever really realized that how important it is to clean up the process to doing something like this is what's going to get you better results. It's going to get you better budgets if the entire legislative process and making a budget is you know, corrected and, and in line with what other states, other states are on the right track are doing. Yeah. And you know, we, we, we filed a constitutional amendment this year as well that I, that I hope we bring back next year that would have prevented lawmakers from relying on borrowing or fund sweeps as revenue. They wouldn't be able to count that towards their general revenue uh, fund. I think that's, that's a very good, very important solution. Um, and you know we, we do need to uh, change our accounting system too, so that we're we're just using real numbers essentially, right? Uh, and you know we're, that we're we're taking into account our liabilities and our debts when we're planning our budgets, so that we know in you know the the term for it's called accruals based budgeting. It's kind of a wonky term, but it essentially just means that you count all the spending that you know you owe. Oh, there's, there's actually, <clears throat> on that point, one gimmick that we didn't get to talk about earlier in the current year's budget. So Governor Rauner has not agreed to a contract with the state's largest public employee union. And because of that, was not paying uh, step raises or step increases, salary increases, to, to employees that existed under the old contract. Well, a judge ordered him to pay those ordered the, the state to pay those raises. That's going to cost about $412 million. Every single legislator, every member of the governor's office either knows or should know that they have to pay that $412 million, and they did not account for that in the budget. So that right there is a you know $412 million hole. And uh, that's just one example of you know, knowing you have to pay a bill, but not counting it in your budget. Yeah, using real numbers and real math would be a good start <laughs> yeah. to making actual budgets. All right, Adam Schuster, Director of Budget and Tax Research. Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. To learn more about the state's unbalanced budget and the issues surrounding it, visit IllinoisPolicy.org. And consider joining the Lincoln Lobby, our private Facebook group for those who want to become more engaged and educated on state and local government. Until next time, this has been The Policy Shop.